0: Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being recorded. My name is Paul Mleary, and this is X Job Downloaded and today I'm going to interview Sharon Herbert. Now Sharon was a member of the City of London Police for 30 years and now she's in private industry looking after people that need support with anxiety, stress, depression and all the other things that come along with the baggage of life. Thank you so much for um, helping me through the technical issues of this morning. Um, How are you today?
1: I'm good, actually. Cool. Yeah, we were woken early by a oven engineer at quarter to seven. So oh, rather than being embittered about getting up early, it's nothing like getting up for early turn, is it? So let's face it.
0: No, exactly. It, it, exactly. I, right gift. <laughs> I do I do slap myself around the face once in a while when I start moaning about things and thinking about the the you know, the tasks that we undertook previously. But where did it all begin for Sharon? What what's Sharon all about and you know, how did how did life begin for you?
1: Um, so I joined the police in 92 at the ripe old age of 19. So I probably had an old head on young shoulders at that point, you know, to various factors sort of growing up and being quite independent, probably quite willful as well. It was one or two camps. I was either going to join the police or, or go and be a teacher. And, and 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 policing, I think, won my heart eventually. I thought you were going twice. to say prison then. <laughs> prison, yeah. <laughs> well, that might I was a shame at one point as well. You know, you never quite know which trajectory your life's going to go. No, you don't. But no, so I I ended up joining the city. Um, Obviously, it's that little utopia in the middle of the Met. Um, I I didn't want to be posted anywhere over London, so it had its own attraction. Um, The IRA was quite active in in London at that time, so we'd have Mary Axe bombings and and things like that. So, yeah, so I ended up joining the city in 92. Um, I was the shortest and youngest female to join up until that point.
0: How funny! <laughs> what, but why the city? Because you're not from the city of London originally. Very few people are, in fact. But why why the city of London?
1: Well, literally, I was living in West London, so I grew up in West London, and 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 I didn't even know it existed. Really, it was it was a teacher at school's husband that was a police officer in the city, and he came out to do a careers talk at one point. I think so that that was the first introduction to the city, and then I did a little bit of research, and bearing in mind the internet didn't exist you had all these sort of pamphlets and the old sort of Metropolitan Police 5 side football stuff that was going on with youth groups and stuff. So I'd done a bit of that. And then I'd met some Met officers. And again, you know, it's, if you're a naughty boy or naughty girl in those days, they posted you the other side. Mm-hmm. To another. And, and not that I was a naughty girl. No, then, of
0: course.
1: But obviously, just, just having that geographical square mile, you couldn't be posted too far. So you kind of knew where you were going. And, and where you were likely to end up.
0: Yeah, of course. And um,
1: style of police, I think, was a little bit more old school.
0: And where did you start? I mean, it, it, it is a square mile, but that, at that time, you had three police stations, Bishopsgate, Snow Hill, and Wood Street, I think, if I'm...
1: Yeah, we, we even had old jewellery back then. So, oh, did so you? So that was still being used, albeit mm-hmm. more so as, as headquarters. So i was straight onto response, as it as it is now, um, very shortly after the Bishop's Gate bomb introduced literally, it, it was sort of proactive policing on entry points. So the ring of steel was, was introduced, mm. you know, there was little scope to be creative other than doing entry point duties. So it was literally like going back 15, 20 years in terms of how we were policing community policing then involved in terms of the engagement side of things. Um, I moved out of response policing probably in about, I want to say, um, 95, 96 into training. So I became a divisional training officer. Right. Um, Which, again, bear in mind when I was leaving school, it was going to be either the police or teaching. I then had the best of both worlds. So I became a trainer, spent a little bit of time up at the force training school, had a few attachments down at Ashford, all that kind of stuff. And I really found my niche. I I absolutely thrived in in that environment. You know, there's a school of of thought that, you know, if you were delivering training, you were rubbish on the front line. But I still hankered for being on the front line. I still hankered for working shifts um, and and that engagement with with the community, whether it was locking people up and being sort of proactive with the community. So I was really fortunate in the city was quite unique. We, we didn't have the constraints of other forces. So I, I got to go out and play with the public and, mm. and arrest criminals as well as deliver the training. And it, and it was a great time.
0: What did the community look like in the City of London in the early 90s, though?
1: Yeah, you had, obviously, the Barbican, which was an extremely affluent estate. Mm. You know, even back then, you know, you, you couldn't buy a flat for under sort of £300,000. Now you're talking millions Um, You had some of the most impoverished estates on the east, so Mansell Street, Middlesex Street. So a real literal extreme of of, of the two ends of of society. And then a huge, huge transient population coming in to work every day. In the realms, again, back then I still think it was 30,000 plus coming in through the various stations and then coming out again. Yeah, Uh, And then small to medium businesses, the nightlife, again, going back to the old days of the print, and again, my dad worked in the print. So, you know, the, the pubs and clubs weren't 24-7, obviously, in those days, but there was a certain element with the meat market and the print trade that would have out-of-hours drinks and um closed doors affairs, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So it's quite interesting. You yeah, know, it, it is a
0: fascinating place.
1: Yeah, Big, big transit population coming through, north to south. So again, a lot of the drug wheelers, as they were in those days, would use the main arterial routes to go from one club to another. So we used to call those days pincer movement days. You'd go around a bit like a pincer movement and and a bit of old school policing.
0: Yeah, and that's what sometimes is lost. I'm in the city quite a lot, and it's I'm really pleased because I still see a lot of coppers walking. Um, I still see a very, very visible presence of um, city offices. I can't say that's the same in other places I travelled to. But what was the atmosphere like? Because at that time you had section houses, you had a very strong camaraderie within the city. And I think that that probably still exists talking to a, a number of my friends because of the density of, of staff. But, but what was that like then?
1: Family, definitely. You know, I, I only spent a short period of time living in the section house um, before I moved out. But, you know, at any given time, if you had Bishopsgate and Snow Hill mustering two units of officers, you could have 45, 50 officers at the peak on duty in a square mile, albeit duties, you know, it was unreal. So you, you always felt as though someone had your back. You know, my earliest memory is standing in the front of Snow Hill and then receiving a call from the CID office for the duty officer upstairs saying that there was a, a fight going on around the corner in Cock Lane. And, and Paul, this is no lie. You know, I ran round with a group of probationers, and it was an affray. It was a group of lads, literally just just trying to kill each other, basically. And and every man and his wife turned up, and there must have been about fourteen of us within a nanosecond. There,
0: fantastic. And
1: it was incredible. It, you very very rarely feared for your own safety.
0: But you, but you're talking about an area that is right opposite the old Bailey. I mean, these are iconic places. You are working in the most historic part of the United Kingdom because the city of London, after Colchester, is one of the oldest cities in in the UK. And like you say, people don't understand that they've got the Metropolitan Police on the outskirts, and then at Square Mile is the city. And I think that following the Casey report, the city will continue because they they would like to have absorbed the city, but they can't afford to do it now because of the criticism that they've had for becoming too big.
1: Absolutely. And and the city is really unique, you know, in terms of the development and the relational side of policing, it, around the community side of things, you know, those key individual networks are really cemented, oh, yeah. you know, so even now, by today's standards, you know, you look at ex-senior police officers that have gone into the security industry, whether that's through cyber crime or preventing terrorism or whatever, there, there is a real need. Yeah, Absolutely. Moment understand people to
0: understand the dynamic of how how the place works yeah and the 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 networking in the city is probably one of the best places in policing when it comes to supporting the 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 customer you know and the the community and and i always say this but the community is always the heart of of policing and every crime starts in the community so whether that's in a a national bank or whether it's in a you know a middlesex street in a deprived house there um, yeah. It always starts in the community, so it, you've, you've moved into the, the teaching strand, and but you've maintained a, a focus on policing uh, right across the board. What was the acceptance of the of the officers at that time? Because, like you say, but it's difficult to be an instructor when um, there are so many experts.
1: Yeah, so many experts. I I think you have to be quite grounded and I think you have to know the limitations of your own ability. You know, you're actually not a qualified teacher, you're a trainer and there's a difference. And it's about how you deliver that. And and then again, we talk about the graduated approach in teaching nowadays. That's what we were doing back then. So, but, but and again, it's easier to talk through rose-tinted spectacles. We were still considered a disciplined service role accounts in those days. So there was an element of, You will do if I say jump. You know, the rights and wrongs of that. We can debate until we're blue in the face. But ultimately, I think with the numbers that were coming through in terms of the uplift that went through in in the 90s and the volume and the quality of training, it it was fit for purpose then. Bearing in mind it's become a very different beast.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's good that the, the uh, youngsters feel empowered to question, but sometimes you don't want them to question at a particular time. You just want them to get on with the job. If I don't like it, then come back and see me afterwards and tell me what I got wrong. Yeah. If I've if I've got it wrong,
1: people that can go on that hamster wheel that can keep the hamster wheel going because we know we we know we need that, but we also need the critical thinkers at the top. Yes, yeah, you know? absolutely. and that's in terms of the training that we were delivering then, I actually think that we produced some really good cops. Oh, know?
0: absolutely. Um, you know. Yeah, significant leaders within policing. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: How long were you in, in the training element?
1: Uh, right up until 2003. So right up until I fell pregnant with baby number one, so my daughter. Um, I was always then going to go back to response policing you know i had it in my head that irrespective of having a baby i was going to go back 24 7 i was going to retire um you know uh, an inspector or above level i I had aspirations and and everything else i hastened to have you know i I had alex it was a really traumatic birth That that was the start of my own um journey with trauma and you know it, it was just something maternal in me that when actually you 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 can't possibly go back and do that. Who the hell do you think you are leaving a baby at home yeah. <laughs> in the capable hands of a dad and 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 playing ping pong. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. You know, I I'd, I'd had these grand ideas prior but having had her and had an experience that, that I went through during the course of the pregnancy and the delivery it it just yeah life became very different for me.
0: <laughs> that's interesting isn't it because now we we're in a we've become a, a society of entitlement and um, accusations around misogyny and all the other things, and, and yes, and I do, I do get some of that. But by opening a door or staying up for a lady because she's got on a bus doesn't mean I'm a misogynist. It just means I'm a little bit old-fashioned. But anyway, um, but what was the, what was it like at that time? I mean, I, I know from my personal experience um, having mums working in my office. But what was that like for you going back to work?
1: Up until having having Alex, we still the, – the city was still um, almost a closed shop to it. So so there were mums that were leaving, you know, yeah. because they weren't dated the flexible working and things like that. My earliest memory back in 93, 94, was having a, a great friend of mine bringing her baby in on night duty, and we took it in turns going upstairs to the locker room to look after him. You know, you think back. So, so, some of my experience was was tainted. Mm. Those early, days. Um, and and actually, I moved into communities. I still had to be interviewed for that post, and it was still, you know, not guaranteed. And there was still every chance that I could end up back on response. But but maternally, something clicked in me. And I think I realised that that wasn't going to work um, in terms of. My ability to recover after the birth, and and with the commute and everything else, and and actually I was accommodated. You know, there were still hurdles to jump over. You know, there was still lots of bureaucracy around flexible working and and all of that kind of stuff. And it was made very clear even back then that you know there was still a job to do. Yeah. You know, it's a, a right of entitlement that because you're a mum or a new mum, this is how it's going to pay out. It it was it was give and take and. I was still quietly job-pissed, if that makes sense, in those days. So it wasn't too much of a, an issue
0: for me. No. We, we work. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. It's um, it's funny because as a dad, of, and I always remember one of my colleagues saying, well, yeah, but I'm a mum and my, my husband works. And I said, yeah, but I'm a dad and my wife works. It's not a, you know, it is it is what it is. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. the, the police has evolved. Maybe at some points it has gone too far and... That's yeah. no, that's up for another discussion. But um, but it has evolved, and rightfully so, because there needs to be encouragement for people to actually take on flexible working because it fills the spaces. But by flexible, I, I, a, a, a mum comes to me and said, I want to do flexible working pattern. Boss, I said, yeah, okay, no worries. What is it? She said, Monday, Friday, 9 till 5. I said, well, it's not exactly flexible, is it? But, you know, if you know don't... And, and
1: that would have been my idea of a hill. You know, that wouldn't have worked yeah. for
0: me. no, Absolutely.
1: That- my community either so in my portfolio was early intervention early help and and when contest was introduced so i was prevent officer you know so i needed i needed to work weekends i still did nights i did early starts at 6 a.m you know so there there was a lot of sacrifice there was a lot of time spent at work and not at home
0: but but prevent was a a, i mean it's still going on i think Um, but but that strand of policing and for those mm. who don't understand, prevent is basically the intervention factor around um, certain communities to try and stop them or um, prevent them from becoming involved in uh, cancerism issues. In, yeah, a, in effect, that's, that's
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, it, in its say, it was it was fraught with a lot of criticism and and a lot of conflict from the communities that we're policing. You know, we got sucked right into the the whole Islamic thing, but actually, you know, especially in the city. There was a need to balance
0: that out with the right wing as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you go geez. back to the the Battle of Cable Street and in yeah. the nineteen thirties. You know, the, the, the right wing has always been a you know a, a fag paper away from from the city of London. And yeah. it, it, it's interesting how that diversion. And and I I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the community policing element of of policing. Um, If in 94, when they did away with the police houses and they started closing police stations and reducing the numbers of community, because policing is all about community, I think that's when things started to go a bit bandy, if I'm honest with you. That's when the intelligence started to dry up and these types of things around Prevent, they had to be introduced because there was no no alternative.
1: Yeah, I think we, and again, being in that little utopia of the city, we were perhaps still in the throngs of being able to do some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, so so communities were still very much a, a broad part of what we were doing. And if anything, it actually expanded. So the rest of the nation, if you like, was was calming things down. We we were slowly growing still. So yeah, I think it was a unique time to be in the prevent world. Um as I say, it was still fraught with a lot of tension, a lot of risk.
0: Was um, it- yeah, absolutely, and, and the risk is you. You're, you only have to look at what took place during the the bombings in um, two thousand and five, was it seven seven two thousand five, and the other stuff that took place there. You're very close to a, a strong Bangladeshi community. Um, yeah. it, it, you've got you know Whitechapel, Brick Lane, uh, Middlesex Street was historically a, a Jewish quarter or part of a Jewish quarter, but of course that's now more Bangladeshi and 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 what have you. How long were you doing the community policing element? Right
1: up until um, 2020. I'm just trying to think. I retired last year. i got to count backwards. So right. during COVID. So when was COVID? 2020. 2020. Yeah. Uh, 20. The end of 2020. I
0: mean. Oh, okay. So you you did that for an awful long time.
1: Yeah. So 18, 19 years.
0: Yeah. You were were you on duty when the bombs went off at? Um, on the tube and, you know, on, on the 7-7 stuff?
1: Yeah, so I was on my way in. So Rich, my husband, was also a police officer. He was oh, well. Wow. Few- Rich was early ten. Right. Was in the- I was actually on a train stuck outside King's Cross um, being held for what we now know, obvious reasons. Mm. Uh, I was sat with a reporter, uh, and, and again, going back to those days, I didn't have a mobile phone, but I had my job radio with me. So I pinged my job radio on and thought, "This, this isn't a power cut. This, there's a lot more to this." Mm. We were going nowhere on the train, and I just thought, "Help I, I need to get into the city." And there was a group of us in the front of the carriage that actually men- it managed to open up the doors, and we ended up walking down the line between um, where we were. Wow! And, and and into the station, and it was just bedlam, absolute bedlam. And again not being able to use the, the radio and everything else. I ended up then walking all the way from King's Cross, all the way it's not that far, down into Snow Hill. Um, and again, every man and his wife was was out. And, and there was still a big anomaly as to the extent of the morning as it unfolded. Mm. So at that point, we we hadn't had the bus go off. Um. So, yeah, I, I was there. I didn't go down... And I didn't see any carnage. I didn't see anything too traumatic. I had stuff coming to me from Rich in the control room and and listening to it all unfold on the radio. Um, I was given the role of community engagement for the morning and and into the afternoon. So I was primarily office based. A couple of days after that, after we'd moved on to a 12 hour shift pattern, I'd spent some time up at the mortuary. Um, which was up at the HAC, the Honourable Artillery Company. And again, the irony of that was that was where I then subsequently ran our cadet unit. Wow. So it was a bit, a bit of sweet relationship with the HAC for mm. me.
0: It, it's, I, I interviewed a guy called Gary Hayes who works in the mortuary there. And um, yeah, I mean, it had a massive impact on him as an individual. And yeah. of course, you're working in the city where this is all happening around you.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You're, you're looking at – and the thing is, as the community person, you're yeah. dealing with it within the community that there are suspicions at that time that members of that community are responsible for these atrocities. It must have been a very difficult situation from your perspective.
1: It was a lot of fear. And and, and that aside, it, it was more the fear. You know, I think it, it, we can all sit and remember where we were when we watched the planes go into the Twin Towers. Yeah. You know, I was on, a, I was doing a upgrade course. Um, what was it when you used to do the terror searches? And mine's pul- gone blank.
0: Pulsar searches. Pulsar, an,
1: an updated Pulsar course, you know. So we were sat there watching the Twin Towers. Now fast forward those years and, and, and now this. You know, the landscape of policing had shifted humongously. And, yeah. you know, and, and again, I think the fear of not just the fear from the community, but fear within the police officers themselves of, I might not actually be going home today. Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a unique fear in the city, bearing in mind we'd had all these resources, all of this response. Everyone's got your back, and all of a sudden the landscape's changed in such a way that you don't know where that threat is anymore. And no. I think actually that was one of the hardest things to navigate, rather than the actual fear of the community. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I was I was up there the other week and I was with a uh, a friend. And he said, "Oh, do you know what? I can't find a bin anywhere." I said, "No, you won't be able to find a bin anywhere because that's where people would have put bombs. You just carry yeah. it around, and then you know, and railway stations don't have But people don't realise that architecturally they've been measured out of the of the the whole system. And of yeah, course, yeah. you've it's got a, the city. have got a really good response to vehicles being abandoned, and it's you know, it's quite a um, yeah. it's a lot of work um, takes place there." When the dust settled with the seven seven element, how did the policing change in the city around community engagement and just the overall overall policing aspect?
1: We, we we kind of got smaller. So as much as we had the numbers, what we ended up doing was was breaking our our areas down even smaller. So we had wards policing already in place, which which kind of corresponded corresponded with the local wards within the local authority. Whereas you might have had one wards officer. Now we were looking at having two wards officers right. with with of responsibilities. So again, breaking it down into businesses and then on top of that, looking at what the demographic was in terms of, because in that time as well, the city had grown slightly with more residential buildings sort of cropping up where it was flats or redevelopments and things like that. So we went from very much a business engagement model to now a residential stroke business engagement model. So it was really like niching it down even further so that, you know, not only your your key contacts were were known, but regular meetings in terms of what was going on in the community, what their concerns were in terms of responding to those concerns, but also being more proactive in addressing those concerns. So, again, if if you look at the ring of steel as it was in terms of being proactive, we were now doing very much a similar theme of work, but very much on a one-to-one business.
0: Right.
1: And residentials. really niching it down, and, and it's two-way. You know, we'd have loads of really good community information, intelligence coming in, and now I think we did an exceptional job of, of reassuring.
0: Yeah, abso- absolutely, because, as you say, you, you have a transient population coming through there, and at that yeah. time there was no homework. And so if you had people uh- going into their offices in, you know, where yeah. ditch or wherever it may be, Bevis yeah. Marks and the like, they still had to come in. They needed that reassurance that they were going to get the support yeah. of the police, and I think that's why the visibility is so exceptional in the city.
1: But it's also in terms of stakeholders. If you if you think about, you know, if we turn it into pennies and pans, mm. we needed to make sure for the sake of the economy that that area was... Oh secure as well you know the effect of everyone else going out towards Canary Wharf or you know coming up to the you know the home counties and things to put their headquarters was a big no-no
0: oh absolutely and, and of course you've hit the nail on the head there this still generates a huge amount of the GDP for the United Kingdom yeah. uh, Canary Wharf has obviously taken a number of people out there but there's still a lot of money in the city the yeah. stakeholder element is huge and long may yeah. it continue yeah
1: very unique. At what
0: point did the city start selling off the estate? Because I know some buildings have, have gone now and closing places. So Snow Hills closed, Old Jury, and they've yes. they've gone into I think they're in Bishopsgate and are they still at Wood Street? I don't even know if they're at Wood Street anymore. Right,
1: well, Wood Street's gone. So um Rich moves. so Rich was at Wood Street for, for most of his career in the control room. That moved over to Bishopsgate um just pre-COVID. Right. So again, now completely gone, which again was its its own challenge because obviously the stables and the garage and stuff like that. Yeah. It. Shortly afterwards, um, uh, there was sort of a skeleton staff left there until they sort of cleared it out. Snow hill went. So Snow hill went um, in twenty twenty, uh, and and again I can say Paul wholeheartedly. I sat and I sobbed that day. I, yeah, I I'll do it. It Off, you know, twenty nineteen. I, I I came back in to clear my locker out and. um moved my stuff over to Bishopsgate, and, and Bishopsgate was a bittersweet pill because it reminded so much of the Bishopsgate bomb, and it's just completely different. You walk out of Bishopsgate, it's busy. Snowhill, Hill, nice and quiet. Yeah,
0: very sedate by comparison.
1: You know, very different. And I did, I sobbed my heart out, you know. When I think back to it, I almost laughed, but I cried, you know. Yeah, no, I get it. Part, huge part of me, big part of... You know, some, some real, real happy memories, but some real sad, tragic memories as well in that building. Were you on but, ju- yeah.
0: duty when the Bishop's Gate bomb went off?
1: I was in training.
0: So Wait.
1: I, I the weekend on weekend off, but again, we came in on the Monday and it was like, you're not up to training school, you're now out. Wow. You know, like, well, what do we do here?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to the, the, the world.
1: You're very reliant on old school tutors in those days of really carrying you and picking you up and actually being very prescriptive in what you can and couldn't do.
0: But there aren't those old school tutors anymore. That's that's the problem. I mean, it's um, you haven't got, you know, no disrespect to them, but the, the, the standards that they accept are probably different to the ones that we accept accepted and the ones that my father accepted when he joined in the late 60s and so on and so forth. So it is, you know, as frustrating as it is, they're trying to do the best job that they can with what they've got available to them.
1: Yeah. But yeah, no, so we're so all in Bishopsgate at the minute, and there's the new build that's just past planning and, and stuff like that, and that's due to be over towards Fleet Street. So I don't know too much about that. And oh, okay. again, COVID, that will sort of all be viewed. Um, because they realised with people being able to work agilely and, and work from home and stuff like
0: that, they didn't need the floor space. So, mm. Yeah, it be that's always an anomaly with me because I don't understand how policing can work from home. If I'm perfectly honest with you, it's not a. It's a really difficult one because if there were a a critical incident in a number of forces, my old one as well, if they had to get in or you know had to respond to it. It's all right sort of like them all sitting at home working remotely at the desktop, but you actually need feet on the street sometimes, don't you?
1: It's, it's how that's managed, isn't it, at the end of the- Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's,
1: that's, that's the deciding thing. I, you know, again, for me, COVID and, and, and post-COVID, when I was um, sort of swiped into another department, I did work from home. That was the first time mm. in 30 years I was allowed to work from home. And and actually, that became my solace, working from home. And again, that is another bad you've had to give, but... I actually, I wasn't um, fully operational then, anyway. So there was probably more benefit to me working at home. I Can certainly had all the problems with me
0: early. Can you imagine in 1992 when you joined, saying, "Do you know what? I've got a couple of years in now. Um, do you mind if I work from home?" Now it's almost an accepted practice. Yeah.
1: Well, well, back then though, if, if you were coming up to over 20 years service, you didn't have to work nights in the city. Is that right? absolutely so again those early days of me joining you know, like, well, why isn't so and so on nights? so no he's helping the lio out this week or he's doing some admin work for grime desk you didn't have to work nights
0: but that kept people that kept people in those jobs didn't it because i look at it now and there's a big dash for everything else other than frontline policing yeah. and having having that Thought that when you got to a certain point, you were able to not do nights or you were going to go and work at the LIO's <laughs> office or whatever it may be. That would yeah. be that if you thought that was the end game, you'd be thinking, Oh, yeah, I'll stay on shift until my time comes.
1: Yeah. Well, the city adopted a 12 hour shift pattern in the control room. Um, and that came in just before Rich retired. Oh, no, it didn't. I like it came in afterwards because even he said, So even with our commute, which kind of has got slightly longer, not because we've moved, but just given the logistics of the trains, yeah. There is no way, it, you know. He's not an old guy. He, he retired at fifty-four, but you know, with the commute, twelve-hour shifts, working in that environment where you've got to be switched on all yeah. time. You d- now, in those not so long ago days, haven't got the resources, so you are literally chained to your desk with little hope of a proper break or screen yep. break. Twelve hours later, and you're expected to make good critical decisions, analyze them
0: absolutely. Yeah, does it's funny because I was um I, I, I can be a, I can be the biggest critic of the police, but I can also be their biggest supporter. And I was asked to commentate on uh, fake calls. You know, uh, people that phone up and saying that. And Essex had on average six a day. Yeah. Well, if they'd only had ten calls a day, I'd be saying, "Oh, that's outrageous!" But the fact is, they have seventeen hundred calls a day. Seventeen hundred. So yeah. if they're getting seventeen hundred calls. And they've only got a hundred coppers on duty a day per shift. How on earth? How can they possibly expect to, to cope with the volume of work with the amount of people they've got available to them? It's just not going to happen. Work, but it doesn't work. It, no, it doesn't work. And,
1: and where does that stress boil down to? That's the trouble. And you know, then we can talk about moral injury. You know, and, and you want to go to work to do a good job to meet the needs of your communities or victims or lock people up or what, do whatever you need to do. And when you can't do that because the pressure's too great, you're in that frying pan. Yeah. That, that's breaking people. And they that.
0: they wonder why some of these controllers become grumpy old men and women. And yeah. and and because they don't suffer falls, they're in the best, best possible job and they will just say it as it is. And, yes, they may be yeah. blunt and, and – but they're not rude per se, they're just saying it how it is and sometimes the public needs to be told how it yeah.
1: is. Part of my experiences within policing probably led me on the path of of, of retraining and requalifying qualifying um, in the time that I was in anyway. So some of that was, I'd had a couple, and again, keep it really brief, a couple of really traumatic births, both my kids almost died at childbirth. Oh, crikey. Going Alex CPR when she was three days old, which again was one of the factors that kind of, uh, put me in the box of thinking, actually, I can't go back to 24-7. Mm. So I've become very hypervigilant, except I didn't know it. Um, so that's 2003, 2004. I'd lost a best friend to a drugs overdose, which was a, a, a hard thing to deal with as a wow. serving.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Well. His um subsequently died by suicide because she couldn't cope with, with losing her son. Again, a good friend of mine. A tragic road traffic accident that changed the dynamic of our family. Uh, my grand was involved um, as a passenger, with my dad ended up becoming a uh, paraplegic. All, oh, all, oh, oh, literally, for a very short period of time, a couple of years, um, and and some other quite big life events. Except, I didn't think they were big life events because I was used to just getting up, getting on, and, and doing, um, and that manifested in some physical health issues. And, and fast forward a couple of years, when I was getting nowhere with with resolving those, it was suggested that I might have had post traumatic stress. Right, and again. It was a big, I'm not going in that box. You you can't put me in the box of post-traumatic stress because that's for weak people. So I carried on um, not realising, you know, what what was happening um, internally, emotionally and and physically. But I I got to the point where I'd had some therapy and actually it it done more harm than good. And then the work that I was doing gave me a real good interest in terms of young people and, and the developmental side of trauma and what they'd experienced growing up and trying to keep them out of the criminal justice system. So yeah. in terms of the prevent, gender, preventing radicalization, what made kids vulnerable and stuff like that, it gave me a real hunger to learn. And I think it's a bit of a distraction from my own issues, really. And uh, sort of fast forward you know, a number of years, I've, I've gone on a, on a bit of a journey to learn about trauma, um, sort of, especially in terms of the developmental side of things realising that perhaps I needed help, I then had to kind of put my head above the parapet and go, actually, you know, I've acknowledged now that all of this has gone on. And it's not a competition as to what the biggest trauma might be. Actually, trauma is what's happened internally. It's what mm-hmm. what's kind of stuck inside of us. Um, so, you know, I, I had some good therapy. Um, it, it was slightly more holistic than straightforward EMDR and trauma-informed CBT. And and that's actually what took me on the path of them being really curious to find out what else was out there and, and why is it, certainly police forces, we, we're a bit like the sausage factory. This is what we offer. We we treat labels, not people. Um, and, and that's where the two worlds collided, if you like.
0: it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I will tell you one of my, my journeys, and my brother will, will tell you the same. On April 10th, 1979, uh, my dad was almost killed in a road collision. He was hit by a lorry and the impact that has on you as a, as a child, um, you know, getting called out of classroom to be told that your dad's in the intensive care that has a massive impact on you for the rest of your life, you know, and it it really does. I mean, it may, it's made me, um, jaded and, you know, grumpy old man, I suppose. I was always going to turn into that, but yeah, it's interesting because we didn't deal with things like that, certainly around kids and, and Mm. what you're doing is absolutely amazing. When you, when you qualified, were you still in the police service?
1: Yeah, so I'd done a number of coaching qualifications in the police for my role anyway, and then that led me on to um, doing a diploma initially in cognitive hypnotherapy, which which was the thing. That I'd looked at and researched as an alternative means of dealing with with trauma. Um, and and the irony, the that the guy that created this form of cognitive therapy was an ex TVP cop, ex Met cop, and again he worked at Hendon. Wow. Uh, and kind of developed this this model of working, if you like, literally for for that environment. So there was there was some nice adhesion going on between us, you know, and, and he'd left the police many years before to develop his own training company with cock hip, um, and and such like. So th- there was a, a natural allegiance, I think, between us uh, as individuals in terms of what I was looking to do with it, but also how I then used it for myself in terms of developing, not just coping strategies, but actually reprocessing some of that trauma that, that had become stuck that, Again, we just we don't talk about it. It's like put your body armor on and crack on.
0: Did it all start to make sense though? What was what was taking place once you once you'd started the journey?
1: Yeah, everything fell into place. Yeah,
0: that's everything. really that's really strange, I say strange, but it's it's brilliant. And no, but
1: also, you know, what what I would say is well, not just my policing career, but actually some of my earlier years' experience. You know, I didn't have a bad childhood, but you know, if I was to describe. You know, my, my dad left um, when I was seven. I became very much, again, if you like, uh, uh, the the old head on young shoulders, even at that age, yeah. um, after my brother and my mum and the dynamic of the relationship and, and some of the chaos and, and stuff that went on around that. I could then put those pieces of the jigsaw together as to why I ended up joining the blues. Yeah, what
0: I, yeah. Was it? And it does. It does make sense, doesn't it? And it, it moulds you from a for a young younger age. Yeah. When you finished in the police service, you'd already set up. And, and what's the name of your company?
1: So it's Sharon Herbert, literally yep. my name. Helping you find your balance. That's my tagline. Yeah. Um, and that's literally on, on the basis of what I do is I don't treat labels. So as much as I specialise in trauma and anxiety, I treat the whole person. So, again, that's where helping you find your balance comes from in terms of working somatically. So, again, functional symptoms that you might be experiencing with the nervous system as well as the emotional side of things in terms of reprocessing, desensitizing traumas. Whether that's developmental trauma, whether that's single life events, whether or not that's pervasive trauma, you know, everybody's different, Paul. And I think that's the uniqueness of, of mm. what I do along with so many others in, in the cockpit world is that we, we shape to the client and how they do their problem. We don't just funnel people through. You know, each and every client gets a different form of therapy in terms of how that is built in stages or as a foundation.
0: Yeah, because as you say, they're they're all different people and they've all experienced different things, whether it's, you know, um, adult survivors of sexual abuse through to people that have witnessed horrendous, you know, incidents, car accidents, whatever it may be. And things do stay with you. Um, you know, I'm 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 quite. I think I'm quite resilient. I, you know, I've I've done things and done stupid things and seen things that are horrendous. Um, but I get on with it. But I'm sure in the, in the detritus of my mind, they still sit there, and you you know, it's it's keeping those, you know, keeping them at bay as much as anything else. And sometimes there, there, there may come a point where you need that. That shoulder, if you like, figuratively speaking, to to cry on and 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 share your experiences with.
1: It's recognising where you are at any given time, you know, and 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 we know that it's not the events themselves that are traumatic. You know, life happens. I call that lemons and melons, right? People die, people have car accidents. You know, you know that as a yeah. young boy. That might have had a profound effect on you in terms of what it's done to your nervous system, in terms of not metabolising, and that's probably played out. But the other stuff you've dealt with actually has metabolized it it has passed through mm. it's through biologically and 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 I think that's where we go wrong in policing is we put a lot of emphasis on on you know the, the horse' is bolted let's treat the person that's been traumatized but actually we, we can do it the other way around you know we, we can actually help people become more resilient and actually prevent trauma from becoming stuck in the first place
0: I was going to say is there a preventative measure that you could that you can put in place with with new recruits, for instance, as a, as a classic example, you're standing in front of a, a, a classroom of, of new recruits. Is there anything that you can provide to them to prevent them from getting all this baggage over their service?
1: I think actually talking about it and and actually having a, a, a smidging of knowledge, and there's always that argument that little knowledge is dangerous, but I think with anything to do with mental health, especially in terms of the policing world, we can't have too little or too much, and and it's knowing where you are. So if if you think about your life as a thermometer, where are you in terms of your capacity, in terms of what's coming in, or even the bathtub analogy? Life is the drip drip. You know, we've got the plug, we let the plug out. In the old days, we had breakfast together, we went for a beer around the meat market, socialised, went rowing, cycling, whatever. These days, people are coming in for 12-hour shifts, they're going out for 12-hour shifts with a commute to most places. There's not the resilience. If you deal with a traumatic incident, you're then not sent home. Or you don't go to the pub. You're on to the next one. Mm. I think having that conversation in terms of recognising your own edges is super important. Do you know, that's, re-
0: that's really interesting that you say that because you're absolutely right that the the camaraderie element around how um, we would decompress after a critical incident, whether that be the you know the dark humour or whatever it is,
1: mm.
0: there isn't that. And the other thing that you do struggle with is that the officers on the shifts, they don't know each other now because they don't have that common bond. And therefore, you haven't got the ability to share your issues or your problems with. And, yeah, that's a really valid point.
1: It's it's, it's being able to be vulnerable, isn't it, in such a way that you know that by being vulnerable, you can trust the person you're being vulnerable Mm. to. And and, and that's huge. You know, that sense of safety, if, if it's not there... Then actually what that does, that if, if we go back to like post-traumatic embitterment disorder, moral injury and things like that, that's where now we've got so many people coming through that actually getting ill a lot sooner when they're exposed to these events and things, yeah. you know. And actually we're not, I have to say we're not. I had a conversation recently with a, a, a CAMS officer and he was saying, you know, the, the number of recruits that are coming through, that, you know, the scrutiny in terms of recruitment just isn't there. So the assessment centres aren't there. So we're not testing people in certain situations and how they're likely to respond prior to doing the job.
0: But you see, your this is another conversation I've had previously around regional training centres. Oh. The the people that weren't suited to being police officers,
1: yeah.
0: they would have been effectively weeded out of the system because they would have been picked up early doors by the by the instructors. Because they had comparators. They had people they could compare with, you know, whether it be Essex compared against someone from the city or the city against someone from Kent. And, you know, we're all down at Ashford together. Yeah. But that doesn't happen anymore. So there's no comparators. You, you don't know what's good and what's bad. And, it's
1: isolated, isn't it? Yeah. We, we, we just got too isolated. And actually, we, we need to open up that. It, it could be a Pandora's box doing it without the right support. But I think if you've, you've got to have that conversation, you know, what 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 is resilience and actually how can you build capacity within resilience and we're all so unique.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Just, just that that awareness is, is going to help someone go, right, well, actually, you know what, these sleepless nights, the fact I'm not eating, the fact I've got low energy, or I'm going back to that event and having these flashbacks or, or whatever, that you know, they are the precursors to kind of going, right, okay, we we need to do something. So whether that's trim, whether or not that's referral to occupational health, whether or not that's coming to work with someone like me. It, it, people need to i say people officers in particular need to have choice in terms of where they're someone posted to as well
0: yeah absolutely and it's the engagement between the police services and the welfare support because actually a lot of this could be diverted well before that gets into a into a situation and it's the understanding by the 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 middle managers and the 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 supervisors. If they start to identify issues with, it could be anything. It could be tardiness. People turn up late. They haven't cleaned their shit. Whatever it may be, if there's a change in personality, if they've always been like that, not a lot yeah. can do. But if there's a change in personality, why has that person changed? What's different in their life? Yeah. And if they don't, if they're not savvy enough to pick up, or they haven't got the the toolbox to, I, I hate that term, but if they haven't mm-hmm. got the directory of what things should be like, then how are they ever going to refer them to welfare support?
1: It's also rapport, isn't it? A lot of that is around the the, the dynamic of rapport. Between yeah, absolutely. Ranks and everything else. And and I think some of that has been lost. You know, we we've that, that's just melted into the background, isn't it? We've become human doers, literally. Yeah, in, in absolutely. Human beings. We don't chat. We don't Have time out for coffee because there isn't that time.
0: No, because we spend so much time looking down at our phones and worrying about what the next like's going to be on our social media. Yeah. Well, and here we are taking part in a social media hist- history, <laughs> su- you know, um, subject. But yeah. do you get engaged by police services now?
1: Um, I, that was a route initially that I thought I wanted mm. to take, but I then very quickly realised actually no.
0: Do you <laughs> so- don't feel disappointed though, because I think that I I feel disappointed sometimes that the police services don't use my skills. Um, from a recruitment perspective on um, um, what have you, because actually I've got quite a good grounding in it now and I think I'm pretty good at it. Do you get
1: disappointed? No, and, and some of that I think is, is I'm in a good place financially with the business as it yeah. is at the moment in terms of work-life balance. So I can actually pick and choose in terms of what I do. I still do some corporate work. Um, I do some stuff with some security companies. I am going back to the city to deliver some training um, around my anxiety and menopause. And again, that's sort of bringing in my experiences around that. But I'm literally dipping my toe in. And initially I was thinking that when I left, that that's all I wanted to do because i had a, a lot of involvement with, with past colleagues, existing colleagues, and other people from around the country, like post Manchester and stuff like that. I've worked with lots of people, officers and and stuff like that. And and I think I just got to the point, I just thought there's more to life than policing. And actually, this isn't about me. It's about just branching out and seeing what else goes on in life. Because it's very easy to stay in the safety of policing, because that's what we know. So I dip my toe in, is the short answer. But but long term, I've got no plans to be a blue light mental health champion as, as such. I know there's others out there that are doing that. that that's their... Bread and butter, that's their thing. That's what makes them tick. That's great. It's just not for me.
0: But you've got to diversify. You know, when you get into the private industry and you leave the police service, if you want to succeed, you've got to have many strings to your bow. You cannot go down that single strand because when somebody chops that single strand off, guess what? There's nothing to go back to.
1: It's not, no. And, and I do. I love working with, you know, emergency responders and everybody like yeah. work. I love it. You know, I've worked with ambulance, uh, fire brigade, loads of police, ex-military and, you know, prison officers as well. And I I think the the common ground in terms of the shared experience of of a life gone by in the 90s when lots of these people joined, late 90s, the, the dynamic with managing family stress, relational stuff, you know, how the job itself has evolved and changed and morphed. You know, I can bring a lot of that, you know, a lot of that does come to the table therapeutically. Of course it does. But you're right, I think there's there's a lot more out there than just the blue badge.
0: And, you, and you've written, I think I'm right in saying that you've been published in a couple of things as well, haven't you? Have you written some articles?
1: Yeah, I've, well, over the years, Paul, to be honest, I've lost track of what I've done. I've done all sorts of things. Um, I did a couple of interviews with Tom Wilhouse when he was doing some stuff um, and some workshops with him. I, yeah, I've done some leadership training with also some of the companies, I can't name because of NDAs, but... Hmm. Yeah, I've been really fortunate in terms of the opportunities I've been given. And some of that has come from networks that I've been in. Some of it is because of the work that I was doing in the police, some of the contacts I had with the home office and such like. And I've been really, really fortunate. Um, the long-term plan was to grow bigger and, and have some associate type sort of relationships with other therapists, especially around the, um, the hip side of things and there's there's a group of us now in excess of 200 that are trained in into wow. a is a specific trauma-based treatment and um yeah there, there was talk of evolving that and opening it up um so it could be peer, peer researched as well and, and getting police forces involved with that but but right now it's not the right time for me to be diving too deep into that that might be next year
0: yeah, but you know what, we we all start with a dream, don't we? When we start our own businesses up, and it's how it evolves over time. And you know, if I if you'd have told me five years ago I was going to be doing podcasts with great people like you, I'd have thought you were bonkers. <laughs> but um, but no. Yeah. It's, and how do we get hold of you? If 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 people listening to this think, oh, do you know, I've gone, I've now identified through this conversation that you've had today, uh, I've identified that I've got some issues that I want to resolve. How do people get hold of you?
1: You can find me at uh, SharonHerbert.com
0: yep.
1: on the website. You can find me, fleetingly me on Facebook. I try and avoid social mm. media. It exhausts me. But again, uh, Sharon Herbert, helping you find your balance, you'll find me there. You can ping me an email at contact at Um I have a very fleeting presence on Twitter, which tends to get me into trouble, so I try and avoid no, it. avoid it, yeah. But, but otherwise, email my uh, website in your browser and, and take a look. There's a lot on there about me. I'm quite honest about my past and, and my own experiences and what I can offer as well. So,
0: well, I'm going to put all of your links into the body of of this um, this podcast anyway. So people will be able to get a hold of you through those links. So if, if you can furnish me with those, I'd be much obliged. But mm-hmm. I, I've I've found our conversation today enlightening. I think that, you know, there's there's a few people that will take a lot away from this. And I think you will be getting a bang on the door from a number of people. Do you do it in person or is it online or how does it all work?
1: I, I, I like to work in person, but I work online as well. I've got clients all around the world at the minute. So I've got clients in Oz, over in the States, a couple in Europe as well. I see people here in Patworth. So I've got... Uh, a locally named and locally named Nut Hut in the garden, as my kids have nicknamed it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How <It's-> inappropriate, yes!
1: <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's a lovely space. You know, I love walking out the back and, and just, just being in the hut. It, it's great therapeutically. I take people out in, in the wild, so to speak, we have a walk or a walk up a hill, not that there's many hills in Patworth or Cambridgeshire. But um, yeah, I'm quite flexible in my approach. Brilliant. As I say, Zoom has opened up the world. Easy access.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. Well, Papworth was the hospital of choice for heart transplants, if I remember rightly.
1: And the old Papworth hospital. Yeah. Beautiful grounds. Currently boarded up being used mm. by Cambridge and Sabri for their public order training. So all the local residents are fed up with the gunshots and stuff like that. Yeah. I laugh and think what a marvellous place to train in.
0: Petrol bombs.
1: Absolutely. Lovely. You know, but no, it's beautiful. And actually the new building is next to Addenbrooke's and, and it, It just got outdated in terms of the emergency care at at Patworth here in the village.
0: Right. Right. okay. well, Sharon, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I think that uh, there'll be scope in the future to discuss some more. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you soon.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me.